You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org. Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 to 5 and verses 26 and 27. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. Verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. This is the word of God. Praise be to God. Thanks. You may be seated. Well, good morning, everyone. It is a, a delight to worship with you. We thank God for the weather. Um, a little chilly, but I trust it'll warm up here in the next few minutes. Well, this morning I'm beginning a new sermon series um, called One Big Story. One Big Story. Here is the big idea of One Big Story. When you read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, you realize it tells one grand story, one great narrative. And one of the goals from reading the Bible is to know what the big story is all about and figuring out how the story kind of applies to your life, right? It's not enough to know the grand story of the Bible. That's very important. That's what we will be talking about But in light of the story, you want to figure out how you fit into this story. A little bit of of what we'll be doing over the next few weeks is called, kind of in seminary terms, biblical theology. The way you understand individual passages of the Bible is to first to understand the greater context or the greater story. So we've been kind of going through the book of Acts. We've been taking a break right now through Acts. But as we've gone through Acts, what I want to do is create the bigger storyline of Scripture so that when we get into individual passages, we're making connections all across the Bible because we know that an individual passage is connected to this greater story. The way I'm going to frame out the story of the Bible these next few weeks is through a few themes. As you might have guessed for today, we're going to be talking about creation. Next week, we'll look at fall, the fall, in Genesis 3. After that, redemption. And then we'll close out this short sermon series talking about complete and final restoration. Where are things headed? That's the restoration we want to talk about. So I'm going to briefly pray one more time, ask for God's help, and then we're going to dive right in. Well, Heavenly Father, we thank you for the weather. But we're thankful that you've given us your word. And you help us to understand the world through your word, through this book. 
And so, God, guide and govern our thoughts, inform our hearts, change our lives. And, Lord, we want to walk away from looking at Genesis 1, not only with a greater appreciation of what you have made, but we want to glorify your name. And so, we trust that you are with us by the power of the Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Some of you know this. If you don't, I am the son of an artist. Uh, my dad is a certified hippie. I'm sure he's got, like, the tag somewhere or, like, some type of uh, I am a hippie child of the, of the 60s, you know. Uh, my dad is not that wannabe artist, uh, but his life has been defined by art. Uh, I don't consider him an artist because of 30 years of teaching art to high school students. I consider him an artist because of what I've observed of him in the home growing up as his son. Here's what I observed. It was common for my dad to work all day. Again, he was a teacher, a high school teacher in Dubuque. And then, and then come home and then obsess over a painting until 4 or 5 a.m. in the morning. There were times when he was so obsessed with a particular creation that all of his time when he wasn't teaching was focused on art. And here's what I know about my dad in art. No matter how much time he spent creating, he believed he could always do better. He could spend months, I mean months, sometimes years on a particular painting and come to the end and realize he could have done something else or he, he could have not done something. It seemed like for my, for my pops, uh, perfection was elusive. For anyone who loves to create, there can be this obsession with perfection, even though perfection seems impossible. Even if an artist creates their version of the perfect painting or photograph, another critic come along and kind of just point out the most minute flaw. My dad certainly knew this. Throughout human history, We have seen mankind create. Man has created things like the Great Wall of China, uh, the Temple of Artemis, which we've seen these last few weeks as we've gone through Acts, like one of the seven wonders of the world, Uh, the Great Pyramids in Egypt, uh, the Taj Mahal and the Roman Colosseum, right? We have seen mankind create things like the light bulb, the airplane, the printing press, and the internet. All these creations are exceptional. Mankind continues to improve upon what has been created. Have you noticed that? Like, consider the latest, greatest, and tallest building in the world. When that thing gets created, what happens next? Somebody comes along and says, you know what? I'm now going to create the latest, greatest, and tallest building in the world. We should not be surprised by humanity's obsession with creating. It's in our DNA. It's in our DNA because as image bearers of God, creating is in God's DNA. God is defined in part as one who has created. But there is a fundamental difference between what we create and what God has created. The difference is easy to understand and fundamental to how we grasp the beginnings, that is Genesis 1, and then the ending, and then the beginning of Revelation 22. 
what we read in Genesis 1 and 2 is God's creation is holy and perfectly good. You know, my dad came to the end of a painting and he's like, ah, I could have done something else. Not so with God. He came to the end. He said it was good. In the time between Genesis 3, which we will look at next week, and when God reveals and restores his broken world, we do see shadows or glimpses of God's good creation all around us. Before folks came in, I got here a little early. I was just sitting here, uh, just looking out and just admiring God's creation. It is good. We see glimpses all around us. We see glimpses of what we read about from the garden. But that's just it. What we experience right now are shadows and glimpses of a created world that has been stained by the sin of man. Admittedly, I'm getting a bit ahead of myself. Before we can discuss what caused the brokenness, we need to have a a strong sense of what God's creation was like before it was broken. The beginning, Genesis 1 and 2, informs the present. The beginning, Genesis 1 and 2, also informs the future. These are really critical passages. A study on Genesis 1 and 2 can go into a variety of directions. Among Christians, opinions run high about issues such as how old or young is the earth? <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm guessing there's, there, there, there could be a variety of opinions on that question here, maybe. Uh, is the word day, uh, yom in the Hebrew, does that refer to a literal 24-hour cycle? Or is that like an indefinite period of time? You know, people debate that question. We got the creationists, and we got we got those who are like the intelligent design category, and then we got the you know the theistic evolutionists. And all we got you know, questions go everywhere. Uh, how about this? How do dinosaurs fit into the creation account? In my own home, in the Powers household, we disagree. My kids disagree about where to place the dinosaurs in the creation account. I mean, come on. What about theistic evolution? Theistic evolution has become more prevalent in recent years. Is that even a thing, right? The rabbit hole of creation goes deep. (laughs) And these questions and others are fun to talk about. And I even think at times instructive to dig in and to think well about God's creation. But here's the deal. The first questions we need to ask about Genesis 1 and 2 are theological In other words, the kind of questions we need to ask are questions telling us about God. Don't talk to me about the word yom in the Hebrew until we've had a discussion about God's role in the creation account. There's no sense in in debating that until you've done that, done the theological work. So we're going to do some theological work this morning. And I'm going to do that by asking four questions. Four questions. So here are the four questions that I'm going to be asking about these two chapters, Genesis 1 and 2. 
The answers to these questions set the table for how you can understand the entire Bible. As a matter of fact, it is remarkable how much of Scripture is constantly referencing or directly quoting the creation account. So this is foundational stuff. Here are the questions. Number one, who created the world? This question has been um, debated since the dawn of creation. Did a random spark create the world? Or was the world created by an entity outside of him itself? The Bible does address this. Number two, why was the world created? This is an existential question. The why question can be considered more significant than the who question because it explains the meaning of existence. Why? It's one thing to ask who, but now why? Third question, how was the world created? You know, the evolutionists have their theories. As I've already said, many Christians have taken evolutionary ideas and assimilated them into Christian theology. But more to the point, how God created the world tells us something about God. We'll look at that. Fourth and final question. And this is why I had Rob read verses 26 and 27 in Genesis 1. What is the significance of the creation of man and woman? The Bible differentiates man and woman created on the sixth day from the rest of creation. I'm going to try to answer that question and explain why. I'm going to explain what is the significance of the creation of man and woman. So four questions, who, why, how, and what. Question number one, who created the world? The Sunday school answer is Jesus. (laughs) But the answer is more profound than the obligatory Sunday school response. Look at what it says in the very first two verses of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then we see in verse 2, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So who is the subject of the first verse in the Bible? Who's the subject? God. We cannot confuse who is the subject of creation. Too often, readers of the Bible actually prioritize themselves in the story of Scripture. Too often, students of the Bible are more concerned with what is being created instead of talking about and looking at the Creator. There's no point in addressing the what question when we talk about man and woman until you've addressed the who question. From the very beginning, through the fall, redemption, and restoration, God is the subject. Another fascinating insight into verses 1 and 2 is that the Hebrew word for God, at least here, is Elohim. It's actually in the plural. Now, as Christians, we have a Trinitarian theology that helps make sense of this, right? But the plural makes sense, especially when you connect it to verse 26 and 27. But the plural of Elohim is a clue as to who created the world. Not only did God create the world, but the Spirit was at work in the creation of the world. So from verses 1 and 2, we know enough to say who created the world. But actually there's more. Consider this verse from the New Testament. Here's Hebrews 1, verses 1 and 2. 
Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, God has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things. And what does it say next? Through whom also he created the world. I was reading this this morning, 1 John 3, in my devotions. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. We read it is through Jesus in which the world was created. It does matter who created the world for this reason. The one who created the world is the one who also has ownership over the world. Let me go back to my example about my pops, my dad. My hippie-loving artist dad, who I love deeply. He has created a lot of art over the years, a ton of art over the years. You go to our house, it is an art, my, my parents' house, it is an art gallery. You go down to his studio, it is just rows and rows and rows of paintings. He owns the art he has created. Even when my dad has gifted me a painting over the years, there's this sense that I have, true story, there's this sense that I have that he could take that particular painting back at any time and he'd be 100% justified because I have this sense because he's the one who created it to begin with. I almost feel bad to be like, no, you can't have that back. If God created this world, then he owns every square inch of this world. No exceptions. Conversely, if verses 1 and 2 are not valid and God did not create the world, ownership is up for grabs. <laughs> Go for it. I saw the other day that the Russians claimed, like, I think Venus or Mercury is their planet, and I'm like, well, I'll take Jupiter. I mean, that's how we're going to roll. I'm going to get a planet. I'm in on this. Materialism is in play, full force. Classic Darwinian evolution becomes the gold standard. The moment you move away from a theistic view of creation, which is what we have in Genesis, the moment you move away from that, you move away from creation and creator, is the moment you begin to move away from the actual reason why you exist. Which leads me to the second question. Why did God create the world? To answer this question, I'm going to dip out of Genesis for a moment. But Scripture is abundantly clear why God created the world. Listen to what it says in Isaiah 43. It says this, Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I have created for my glory. That's what God says. Bring my sons, bring my daughters, whom I have created. For what, what reason? For his glory. Whom I have formed and made, it says at the end of this verse. Pastor John Piper comments on this verse saying, even if the narrowest meaning here is, I brought Israel into being for my glory, 
The use of the words created, formed, and made are pointing us back to the original act of creation. This is why Israel, whom this particular passage was being spoken to, this is why Israel ultimately exists. Because this is why all things ultimately exist, for the glory of God. And John Piper is absolutely right on this point. You exist for the glory of God. This entire celestial ball is a reflection of God's glory. Every living creature points to the glory of God. You exist for the glory of God. Psalm 19 says the heavens declare the glory of God. If someone were to ask you, just pull you, pull you aside and say, hey, I got a question for you. Why did God create this world? You can say with confidence, the world was created, mankind included, to glorify its creator. Which means your lives are ultimately an act of worship to God. Perhaps no verse in the Bible conveys the reason why, and this gets back to the who question as well, why God created the world. And then Colossians 1.16. For by him, and the hymn here is Jesus, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Did you hear that? The him in this passage is Jesus. We see from this passage, as we saw from Hebrews 1, verse 1 and 2, Jesus is the creator, but not only is Jesus the creator, everything is created for him. Heaven, earth, what you see, what you don't see, thrones, rulers, authorities. The glory of God is maximized in creation when it is realized that all things point back to Jesus. All things exist for Jesus. All things, your very life, is designed to worship Jesus. With, with precision and purpose. I love this passage. With precision and purpose. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians. He just kind of brings everything I've said so far together. Listen to this. For God who said, he's going back to Genesis 1, let, shine, let light shine out of the darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The world has been created so that the glory of the sun would shine in the hearts of God's chosen people. So who created the world? Jesus. Why was the world created? So that Jesus would be glorified, especially through men and women. Now, how did God create the world? Let's go to that question. Now, the answer to this question is like a week-long class, but here are the cliff notes. In the Hebrew, in the beginning, that particular word, suggests God created out of nothing. You may have heard me reference the Latin phrase in previous sermons, ex nihilo. Uh, basically means out of nothing. Here's the massive implication, though. Our sovereign God who has nothing to work with, who had nothing to work with, was able to create something. Go back to my pops. When my father creates a new painting, he has a canvas to work with. He's got like acrylic oil paints 
He's got all kinds of stuff that he can use and use his imagination and just work with. He has specific tools. Now, in a sense, my father has sovereignty over his paintings, as it were. But that does not compare to the creative sovereignty of God because God created out of nothing. And get this. In the Bible, in particular the Old Testament, when the Hebrew word for create is used, it is always and exclusively used in relationship with God. Humans build and form. Humans make stuff. But the term create in the Old Testament is reserved for God. So even though human beings also create, there is something special about what God has created. In addition to what I've already said, the seven days of creation receive a lot of attention in terms of trying to ask that how question. And for good reason. Now I'm not going to get into the details about each day of creation. But I want to point out how God proceeded to create the world. Again, I'm not getting into the weeds of Yom and it's a 24 hours. I'm getting theological here. We know from verse 1 that God is the creator. In verse 2, we read of a somewhat chaotic scene. Verse 2. The earth was formless. Dark, darkness persisted. But in verse 3, the light switch goes on. There is light because God's sovereign will spoke the light into existence. And then from, from one day to the next, we read this. And God said, and it was so. And then you go to the next day of creation. And God said, and it was so. And then the next day, and God said, and it was so. So in God's might and majesty, darkness gave way to light. What was formless began to take shape. Chaos becomes order. So how did God create? He created from nothing. And he created in such a way that there would be order. When we arrive at day 6, verses 24 to 31, we begin to understand the significance of order being brought to the earth. We see the purpose of the plants, the trees, the birds of the air, the fish in the ocean, the animals on the ground. God wants the crown, of his, the crown jewel of his creation to flourish. And the order he provided is designed by God for human flourishing. Which is my segue into the last question. What is the significance about the creation of man and woman? Adam and Eve. Like I've already said, the Bible differentiates the creation of man and woman from the rest of God's creation. I think we need to reread verses 26 and 27 and let the depths of what is being said here sink sink deep into your mind and heart. Here are some of the most fundamental verses in Scripture. Then God said, let us make man in our image. There's that plural again. After our likeness. So we have image and likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish 
of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So everything that had been, everything that had been created prior, God is saying to the man and the woman, hey, charging you with a little responsibility here. And you're going to flourish in this context. Verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Let me try to help you grasp the weight of these verses. In your mind, consider the most stunning moment you've experienced in God's creation, right? Or maybe it's somewhere you've visited. uh, The Grand Canyon, the Rocky Mountains an experience with the ocean. I remember the first time I went to the ocean, I actually went with my mouth wide open, got a bunch of salt in my mouth, but it was pretty spectacular to see the ocean for the first time. Truly, it just went on for miles, and it did, obviously. What about viewing the stars when there's no light pollution on a crystal clear night? The might of a hurricane or the power of an F5 tornado. In your mind, also consider what God has created that brings you joy. Uh, For all three girls at the Powers house, it is the strength and beauty of a horse that brings them joy. Uh, I thank God he created my dog, Winston. He sits at my feet when I work at my desk, and he's wagging his tail the moment I get home. That brings me joy. Whatever it is that stuns you, puts you in awe, whatever it is that brings you joy, they do not compare to what God thinks of his image bearers. In a stunning development in Genesis 1, God goes from creating a beautiful picture of majesty to entrusting people made in his image to steward and care for what he has created. God's creation is pure. God could have stopped at verse 25, the creation of the animals on the earth, and called it all good. He could have rolled right into retirement, put his feet up, and said, you know, I'm good. And he'd been justified. But he didn't stop. He did not stop. As I've already said, the crown jewel of creation is man and woman. What distinguishes the creation of men and women from, say, my dog Winston, Or the oak tree that's been around for hundreds of years and it's going to be there well after I die. That's in my backyard. The distinguishing mark has to do with that word image. What does it mean to be made in God's image? The term image implies that every human life is a reflection of God's spiritual nature. The very life of God has been breathed into man. Man is not God, but they are a reflection of God. One commentator says this. I found this really helpful. I'm thinking about, thinking about kings and castles way back in the day. I think England. He says this. Just as kings set up statues of themselves throughout the border of their land to show their sovereign domain, so God established his representatives on earth. No aspect of God's creation brings God greater glory than a man or woman because they have the same fiber of of God, that, that kind of DNA of God. 
Let me pause to kind of tease out what it means for human beings to be made in God's image. Um, again, in the Latin, it's called the imago Dei, being made in God's image and likeness. It defines how you understand yourself. You know, I've had countless counseling sessions over the years where I hear from an individual these kind of statements. This is what I think of myself because this is what the world thinks of me. I'm ugly, I'm short, I'm going bald, whatever. Every time I hear a person describe themselves because of what the world is saying, I make a beeline to Genesis 1, verses 26 and 27. If you are a human being, you are defined by what God says and not by the garbage doled out by social media, Netflix, or Hollywood. Here's one more application point about what it means to be made in God's image, to be a human being made in God's image. The Imago Dei not only instructs how we view ourselves, but it also tells us how to view one another. Think about that for a moment. If the people around you are made in God's image, should that not inform how, you sh- how they should be treated? Next time you're tempted to pop off, Next time you're about to rail against a politician or a public figure. Next time you sense the impatience coming. Remember that your actions will be directed toward a person bearing God's image. That'll temper some actions. Another aspect of men and women uh, being distinguished from the rest of creation is also moral agency. Moral agency is an individual's ability to make moral judgments based on some notion of right and wrong and then being held accountable for actions. God understands what is just and unjust, what is right and what is wrong. Humanity has inherited the same capability. Moral agency is essential to understand, especially as we turn the page next week to Genesis 3. And we'll look at how kind of the wheels fell off the wagon for man and woman. But your ability to discern right from wrong is unique from the rest of creation. From Genesis 1, we also need to see that with the creation of man and woman comes blessing and responsibility. Verse 28, when God blesses the man and woman, he has sanctioned them with responsibility. In particular, God sets them loose to care for everything he created. I mean, think about this for a moment. The Garden of Eden was a place of pure beauty and perfection. It was a place where God walked with Adam and Eve, Genesis 3, verse 8. Adam and Eve would have had perfect peace. In my opinion, there's not a verse in the first three chapters of Genesis that summarizes the purity of Adam and Eve in the garden than Genesis 2, verse 25. Listen to this. This is the last verse of chapter 2. And the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. There's nothing sexual about this statement. The final verse of chapter 2 informs us that Adam and Eve were naked with no shame. They were at ease with one another, without fear of exploitation for evil. Again, there was a purity and innocence in the garden. 
it should go without saying that this purity and innocence has eroded. If I could rewrite verse 25 to fit what we see in our culture today, it would be something like this. And the man and his wife were both naked, and they were immensely ashamed. What happened? Well, you've got to come back next week, once again. Here's one way to summarize everything we have learned so far from Genesis 1 and 2. And I get this from Pastor Kent Hughes. As we come to the third chapter of Genesis, Adam and Eve are living in unparalleled splendor amidst the crystal waters and green forests of Eden in delightful concert with each other, with the animals God had placed in the garden. The magnificent couple shared the same bones and the same flesh in naked majesty. She was at once his daughter. She came out of him. His sister, she had the same creator father. And his one flesh wife. Their one flesh relationship reflected the eternal intimacy in order of the Holy Trinity and foreshadowed the intimacy in order of Christ, his bride, the church. Final sentence. This is helpful. Their intimacy was a substantial glory to God as a reflection of what always was and a glimpse of what was to come. When we begin next week to talk about how the wheels fell off the wagon, we will reflect on the goodness of God's creation while simultaneously looking forward to the solution. But as it pertains to today, we cannot miss the undefiled, unadulterated goodness of God in his creation. Genesis 1 and 2. What we read in these these two chapters is what we long to be a part of again when Jesus returns. In a sense, Christians are living between two gardens. The garden we read about in Genesis 1 and 2. And the future city garden that we read about in Revelation 22. And we long for the day when we are back in a garden. And the primary thread holding together creation, fall, restoration is Jesus. Redemption. Jesus not only created the world, Jesus is the only hope for our future. He is the Savior of the world. Therefore, faith in Jesus, the Son of God, helps us to make sense of all that has happened, all that is currently going on, and all that will happen. Sole Deo Gloria, which means to the glory of God alone. Let's pray. You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org.